Well, good morning, OCC. Um, yeah, I'm going to be a little nervous today. It's my first full message in front of a group of people, but I know that uh, it's not just because of me, but the Holy Spirit in me that will deliver this message for you, so I can rest in that fact. But before we begin, I want to try and set the stage for where we actually are in Jesus' ministry. So unlike our previous messages, this teaching from Jesus is much later in his ministry. So we've seen Craig has been walking through actually Jesus prior to the beginning of his ministry. And I guess I decided to skip ahead a few years, which is just fine. But he has moved on from Galilee, where he actually started, where we saw where Craig was preaching from. We see that he's actually later in his Judean ministry, most likely in his second year out of the three years of ministry. And Jesus is actually on his way back to Jerusalem for the final time. Luke 9.51 says, As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. We see in the previous chapters that crowds had been following Jesus for some time as well. We remember this from the feeding of the 5,000. We see in the Gospels that whenever there are really, really large crowds that are following Jesus, he begins to say some pretty wild things that really press some pretty hard buttons, which is what we're about to hear today. So with all of these things in mind, we'll be reading from Luke 12, 49 through 53. I have come to set the world on fire, and I wish it were already burning. I have a terrible baptism ahead of me, And I am under a heavy burden until it is accomplished. Do you think I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I have come to divide people against each other. From now on, families will be split apart, three in favor of me and two against, or two in favor and three against. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Although this passage, at its face value, sounds harsh, and right, like when we hear it, we would say that this is some pretty harsh stuff that Jesus said. It's something that you would probably say to yourself, I can't believe Jesus said that. But he did right here. And I would actually argue, as we dig a little bit deeper, that it's a lesson that Jesus said to benefit us greatly. And there's a lot here, a lot in this small section of scripture, and I want to try to break it down just a little bit before we bring it all back into our main application for the day. So that first line, the first initial line, I have come to set the world on fire, and I wish it were already burning. How crazy, huh? But I mean, fire, for the most part in the Bible, can be representative of judgment. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about judgment that he's going to be bringing. And this coming judgment would be for when Christ returned. And he wasn't gentle, obviously, right? He, he wishes that they were already burning. He wishes the world were already on fire. So again, this may seem like really harsh at the front end, but for the Christian, what more could we want? God is just, and judgment for sin will be made. But Jesus suffered that punishment for us on the cross. He came to bring the fire of judgment, a judgment which first fell on him, and tragically will also fall on those who reject him. John 3.18 says, 
There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. So that next line, I have a terrible baptism ahead of me and I am under a heavy burden until it is accomplished. What's he talking about here? A terrible baptism? Who thinks of baptism as terrible, right? But he said that. And we know that he was talking about the coming suffering as he was walking back to Jerusalem for the final time to be crucified on the cross. And again, it's interesting, right? Like I just said, we don't see baptism as this terrible thing. We see it as something that we rejoice over, as baptism we've seen here. But we see Jesus was talking about this exact baptism in Mark 10, 38. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? So we know here, he was talking to James and John. He was traveling with the 12 apostles. Two of his apostles, James and John, asked if they could sit next to him in places of honor after he took his throne. See, uh, the Jewish people at the time thought that Jesus was coming as some sort of military or political leader coming to take back uh, Judaism from Rome. But unknown to James and John at the time, Jesus would be taking his throne at the cross. So they didn't know really what they're asking here. And we recently, again, talked about baptism and the Greek word for it, which is baptizo, which means to be immersed. And a little bit more context around that is that Greek literature actually uses that word to refer to death. But Jesus used it in a context to show that he would literally be immersed in suffering. And we see that Jesus was also under a heavy burden. What did he mean by being under a heavy burden? We don't think about Jesus as being under a heavy burden. But we can go to the Greek here in that specific word, and that word is synechomai, which in this case means to be in a state of mental constriction or to be hard-pressed by urgency of circumstances Jesus was in constant pressure about what he was going to be going through as he was walking back to Jerusalem throughout his entire ministry. He always had it on his mind. He knew the agony that he was going to have to experience for all of us. And we know that he experienced that same exact agony in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22, 42 through 44. Jesus said here, Father, if you are willing Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. That weight of fearful obedience is something that we won't ever understand, something that we will never be able to accomplish on our own. And the next line, do you think I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I have come to divide people against each other. Now there's a lot we could say here to this passage because it seems so counterintuitive of what Jesus talked about before. And it's gonna seem like the most controversial portion of our scripture today. But in, in our Midwestern culture, 
that we kind of live and grew up in, we don't want to choose sides. We really don't. We, and I feel this in my own life. I, I've had it happen so many times, but we tend to agree with whatever people are talking about instead of sticking up for what we believe in and being faithful. We'd rather just agree and not have to go through this huge argument or discussion because it's just not worth the trouble, right? I think some of you will feel that. And we like to think that we can sit on the fence and play both sides of that thing. We do that a lot. And Jesus is speaking against that exact attitude here. Elsewhere, we see it in Revelation three fifteen through 16. He says, I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. We see that the church in Laodicea was castigated as lukewarm Christians whose inconsistent lives stood for nothing but themselves. They literally sickened Christ to the point of his spitting them from his mouth. We see that indecisive commitment to Christ is literally revolting to him. So what does this all mean? What does this mean that that Jesus is a divider or faith is a divider? We can go to a passage of scripture that Craig actually touched on at the beginning of the series. Luke 3, 9 and 17. He says, this is John the Baptist right here. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. That fire of judgment we just saw. In 17, he is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. There it is again. So what we can take from these beginning parts of this passage of scripture is that the world is actually divided into two groups. Okay, Not all the ones that we like to think they're divided into. Those who believe in Jesus Christ and those who do not believe in him. Those who are in the kingdom of God and those who are in the kingdom of darkness. As we've seen from these passages, there is actually no middle ground, as our culture would like to say, right? There's no room for fence sitters. Because Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. So we have to keep in mind, too, that it isn't actually Christ himself that divides, but his teaching. So Craig has talked a lot about this before. He's touched on this a couple times, but there are things that we allow to divide us that shouldn't, right? There's only two groups. So what are these things, actually? They could, it could be anything. It could be anything that's worldly on this earth. And everybody's probably thinking, well, politics. Politics being the main one. Well, yeah, obviously. What's the most divisive thing we can think of right now? Politics. But we see, even see it in the church. We feel offended because people wear jeans and a hat or something, and, and we feel like that's an issue, and I'll let you in on a secret. It's not, right? We allow, and some people allow that to divide them against other people. Literally clothes you wear. 
But those things don't matter. What matters is Christ. And Christ alone, he's the one that unites us. And because of that, divides us, right? So the last part of this scripture, from now on, families will be split apart. Three in favor of me and two against. Or two in favor and three against. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, and mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. It's easy to present to people the Jesus that just heals and blesses and loves, right? We hear about that Jesus a ton, which isn't a bad thing. It's a good. But you begin to show them a Jesus that isn't watered down by culture, and it starts to get tense. You kind of feel that now? There's some, there's some tension around this specific passage of Scripture. And we know that this tension comes to a climax Again, like I hit on before, that there are large crowds following Jesus. Luke 12.1 even says, Meanwhile, the crowds grew until thousands were milling about and stepping on each other. They were literally stepping on each other. The crowds are so big. But Jesus knew, he knew that these people were following him around for superficial reasons. They liked Jesus because of what he could do for their businesses at the time when he was popular and not being persecuted, what he could do for them from a healing standpoint and everything else. But he wanted to show them what it truly meant to follow him and what it was going to look like for a lot of these followers. And just like today, this leads to people turning away from Jesus. John six sixty six says, at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. His disciples, they turned away and deserted him. And just like our Midwestern culture, Jewish culture at the time, also had a large importance on family. They probably had regular statements like, at the end of the day, all you have is family. Right? You hear that, some of that stuff a lot. And Jesus is saying that it is sin to place family or anybody or any earthly relationship, for that matter, above him. These comments led to placing, these comments that we just heard, lead to placing family above a calling from God. And to kind of reiterate this point, we, hopping a bit forward, Jesus uses an example of a family again, in front of a large crowd again. Luke 14, 26 through 27 says, If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Again, harsh words from Jesus that we don't like to hear about or that people just don't talk about in general. And we also see this elsewhere in the Gospels. Jesus quotes the same scripture. This is actually from Micah 7, 6. He quoted that scripture within Luke and he's going to quote it within Matthew. And he said that. He said this exact thing. He went after this because Jews knew 
at that time that end times were associated with familial strife. So there's a reasoning behind why Jesus went after the family here, why he went after the family structure. Jews at that time would have known what he was saying, what he meant by that. But Matthew 10, 34 through 39 says, don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. If you love your father or more or mother more than you love me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. And we know that Jesus, he's not the culprit. He's not the culprit here. Mankind's evil and sinful heart is. Jesus' truth is right and good, and he promises peace to those who accept him as truth. Division comes when mankind rejects him and chooses a side of death. This quote from 19th century Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle, says it fairly concisely, surprisingly enough. He says, Let us never be moved by those who charge the gospel with being the cause of strife and divisions upon earth. It is not the gospel which is to blame, but the corrupt heart of man. So long as some men and women will not repent and believe, and some will, there must needs be division. To be surprised at it is the height of folly. The very existence of division is one proof of Christ's foresight and of the truth of Christianity. So as we come to a close here, I'm going to start on my application and main point, and we're going to come to a conclusion. My only point for the day, the only one, when supreme love for Jesus is not found in a family, faith becomes a divider. And as you've been probably been wondering this entire time, this is not because Jesus does not offer peace, but because those within the family fail to love him supremely as their peace. They replace other things. They replace Jesus with other things that seem to offer peace and joy. Craig has said this many times, but the peace that Christ offers is not the same peace that is offered by worldly things. Remember, the Jews at the time would have thought it was a political peace. They thought it was going to be a militant peace. That's not at all what Jesus was talking about. It was a peace offered to those who believe in him and what he did for them on the cross. And that's it. And you're probably wondering again, well, well, does Jesus want me to hate my father and mother and everybody else, right? Well, no, because in that passage he says by comparison, right? Specifically by comparison. So of course, we're commanded, literally commanded to love, respect, and honor our parents and grandparents. We see that literally in the Ten Commandments. And Jesus rebuked a man for not doing that exact thing. And some might also say to this, to all of this, that it's unloving 
that's not how you love somebody. That's not what you do. But we know from Scripture, if we believe that Scripture is without error, is infallible, we know that true love is found in self-denial. Jesus said it himself in John 15, 12 through 13. He said, This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. And some people like to stop there. But he says, There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. We know that Jesus would go on to show us true love in laying down his life for us at the cross, demonstrating what it truly means to love each other, not in the way that we say, I love ice cream or um, whatever, I love hamburgers or I love steak, which I really do like steak. But I mean, right? It's not the same kind. It's not the same way. This is what love is. And now we don't, this doesn't mean that we go looking for ways to somehow like end, end our lives for our friends, right? But it means that we lay down our lives, our selfish ambitions, we lay them down daily for the good of others. Our culture today likes to say that we should just love ourselves and that the answer for our care is found deep within ourselves, right? That we can somehow have this kind of self-care. But Jesus flips those notions on their head. Jesus tells us to deny ourselves. He says to take up your cross daily. You know what it meant to take up your cross in those times? It means dead man walking. And the Jews at that time, and Gentiles, would have known what he was talking about. And again, you might be saying to yourself, easy for Jesus to say everybody loved him. His family never left him. They were always around. Well, luckily, we actually know that's not true. As with many of his other sufferings, Jesus experienced this exact thing we see in John 7, 1 through 5. It reads, After this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea, where the Jewish leaders are plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish family of shelters And Jesus' brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. Even his brothers didn't believe in him. Luckily, we know that James later becomes a leader in the Jerusalem church, who's a brother of Jesus, and he wrote a letter in the New Testament titled James. And I don't have a great example of this in my life. I don't have a great example of familial desertion. I think in our Western culture, we're kind of um, paralyzed to that fact. We don't see it happen as, mu- as much. We don't hear about it as often. Um, I wish I had time to go into it. Um, Natalie has an amazing story about that. You should talk to her about it. Um, extremely um, awesome story too. Um, but me, like, luckily my family has always accepted me. They know I'm a Christian, both sides of my family. They still want me around. So I'm extremely grateful for that. But it happens. Some of you out there probably have felt this, right? Just because you're a Christian, other people 
maybe just even your friends don't want anything to do with you. You can feel this division. You feel this passage now, right? If you felt that, you feel this. But even when those things happen because of placing Christ higher than family relationships, Jesus reassures us. Mark 10, 29 through 30 says this. Yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. So we see that what is gained in Christ far outweighs any loss that we could experience here on earth. And from this, we can rejoice in our sufferings, not because of our sufferings, but in our sufferings, our losses, our weaknesses, and we can count all those things that other people might tell us are, are awful as gain for the kingdom of God. How reassuring, how freeing. Jesus calls for a commitment to him that is so foundational that it makes identification with him more primary than identification with one's own family unit. So as we conclude, at the heart of this message, Jesus is calling us to radical devotion to him that supersedes devotion to any other earthly relationship. Any other one. But here's a caveat. I don't want you leaving here today thinking that you can make a list that looks like this. One, God. Two, spouse. Three, kids. Four, everyone else. Right? Like like we like to do. We like to make a list and say, I'm going to do that. And you think you're going to be successful. Again, this whole Western idea, this Western culture at work in our minds. We hear about the radical kind of devotion that Jesus requires of us. And we think that we can rely on our own willpower for that. If you're leaving here telling yourself that, I'll ask you next Sunday. I'll ask you, how did that go for you? I know you feel this. I know you do. Because it's happened so many times in my life. Here's how it would go. Here's how it would go. Growing up, even now in my marriage, I would mess up. I would tell myself that I have to do better and not screw up again, just do better. And then eventually, what would happen? I'd just screw up again. Over and over and over again on repeat, right? And as guys, we think that we can just run our heads into a wall and then eventually things get fixed, right? Yeah, no. Everybody really understands that one. So when I was told that I didn't have to work for my salvation, that it was something that was freely given and done for me, It was the greatest news ever. I didn't have to work for something for once in my life. Oh, man. So this week, I want you to not rely on yourself because you just get in the way. I want you to rely on Christ. Pray for full and utter dependence on God for that is when truly awesome things happen. Colossians 1.29 says this. This is Paul. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power 
that works within me. So Paul, a guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, realized this exact thing. He depended on Christ's mighty power to work and struggle so hard. Not the other way around. Paul knew that he was the worst of them. He was totally depraved. He had to rely on Christ's mighty power daily. The guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament had to do it. I entreat you, church, to hear this message of radical devotion that even splits families apart and rely fully on Christ for this power through his Holy Spirit.